as we continue in our, our long series, long for a good reason, because it's such a big, big, massive topic of God's mission plan as it's revealed in the Bible, the big narrative of the Bible. And we've summarized it as shalom in the sanctuary of God. We've come to the, one of those points this week that I want to stop and look closely at just a few verses in Ephesians. We've been using Ephesians as our way, as a, a lens for exploring this mission plan and what it looked like in the first century world that Paul was addressing, but also what we can learn from that by way of our reflections today. And the verse in particular is one that is focused on being filled with and by the Spirit. Just these verses we've heard from Jeff from Ephesians 5. As we've been exploring the... uh, the realities of life in the first century and Paul has been talking about what the gospel looks like in the messiness of the first century. I don't know how you find it, but I've been finding um, almost wearing to go through the realities of um, the day-to-day life. Different people have may point to different life-changing experiences. They could be a discovery, they could have been an experience that you have been through that has changed everything. For some, sometimes it could be a different diet. And saying, I've gone into a new diet and it's just transformed me. I feel so much better. And they become an evangelist for the various diets that go out there. Others, it might have been a new uh, pattern of life, of a new exercise or a new hobby or a new pursuit. And it's been life-changing Each of those are valuable in their own right. And it's good to to hear it and hear the enthusiasm of how it may have affected family and friends, though we tend to filter it through and sometimes we think, it's terrific for others, not so sure it's going to be for me. But this week we come to what I would regard as the ultimate life-changing experience, at least in spiritual terms. Just what it looks like being filled by the Spirit, will vary from person to person. It's not um, something, I'll come back to that one in a minute, but it's not something that um, is one and the same for all people. The experience for some might be in a very intense, decisive moment where everything changed thereafter. For others, it can be just a gradual process of change until you realise Compared to where I was previously, I'm now in a very different space. I now view myself and the world and where God is at work in my life differently. So there's no shoulds about what we should anticipate experiencing by way of being filled with the Spirit, recognising that that can be something very real and very profound for different people in different ways. And so it is also true for churches. But the Reality underlying it is life-changing. And if we choke it off, if we close it off, it's a bit like turning the gas off on a fire. Then suddenly that fire is not going to burn. It's not going to have any impact. So as we view this being filled by the Spirit and ask those questions of what does it look like, what has been referred to here, I want to draw it into the context of God's mission plan because there's very strong connections between this and the whole theme we've been talking about. So I've described God's mission plan in terms of shalom 
in the sanctuary of God. And shalom is that term that we unpacked that uh, uh, conveys the fullness, the flourishing of God's creation, of wellness and wholeness and prosperity, a place of peace, a place of restoration, of being filled up again, being replenished. So you can see the connection between all this language of shalom and the notion of being filled. This isn't a diversion. This is at the the centre of this God's mission plan to bring shalom. And that's why I've, uh, uh, with a fair degree of enthusiasm, I've been commending this notion of shalom, of being a sanctuary of God for our vision for a church, is uh, something that is... um, so integral to our calling as God's people, but even more so of what God is looking to do in and through us as God's people. Alongside it, that notion of, uh, of flourishing, of being restored and replenished, is for a purpose. This is another way of describing the, the blessings of creation. Remember the different creation accounts talked about that God's purpose in creating Humanity, uh, male and female in the image and likeness of God, is for a reason. There's a job to be done. And through the exercise of what God is calling us to do, we should anticipate and grow into those blessings. Be fruitful and be blessed and experience the fruitfulness of the abundance that emerges in this ongoing creation project. So the two verbs that we identified back in uh, February when we, we opened up this series was the, the two verbs that come to us in the second creation account in Genesis 2. That we are called, humanity is called, to cultivate the world and to take care of it. And for both of these areas is uh, work to be done but also work that will lead us into life-giving creative pathways. This is not just the toil, but this is the creativity and the, uh, the, the energy of life that God is um, bringing, not just within the Garden of Eden, but to extend that further and further afield. So that's a very short version of where we, we started off back in February. So as we come to this verse in uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, it starts off with a don't. Don't get drunk on wine. And this is the last of the the don'ts and the do's. It's been a whole series that started in chapter 4 and chapter 5, all uh, premised on be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ has loved us himself, as God has shown his grace to us, so we are to show it to others. And then as Paul has then spelt out, so what, do we, what does that look like? Paul has talked about the realities of life in the first century that have a lot of similarities to the way of life in the 21st century. So there's been a whole list of don't do these things because they are, uh, they are harmful, they are abusive, they are not life-giving And there's been a whole series of do's, don'ts and do's. So the last one of these now is the um, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to 
uncontrolled living. And I'll come back to that very, very shortly. Instead, the positive, be filled with the Spirit. And that then draws us into being just like Jesus in that space. So let's start with the whole passage from verse 18 right through to verse 21 is all one sentence. Doesn't come through in most translations. But it's helpful to know that this is all a set piece. And it is all premised on that phrase, be filled with the Spirit. Um, this is the, what's, if we look at the passage, this is the main verb. Everything else comes as a result of that one statement, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another and so on. Right down to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that final part of that long sentence I'm going to set aside for a few weeks until I can come back, when we do come back, God willing, from our trip to Lambeth, um, with submitting to one another, because it is such a a countercultural and profound uh, introduction to the household codes that follow. So Paul then begins to address what does this look like in a household in the first century, and he talks about the relationships that household between husbands and wives, between children and parents, between slaves and masters. But each of it is prefaced by that line. So that is so important. I've uh, set that aside that we will come back and look at that in more detail. So this long sentence uh, comes as a set piece. And we can notice within that that it's bookend by the words in uh, orange there. I don't expect you to follow in all the details but just to see how this is all um, drawing together. Being filled by the the Spirit is then unpacked with a series of verbs that follow. Addressing one another, singing and making melody to one another, giving thanks and submitting to one another are all an expression of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And we notice that the one another references, addressing one another at one end, of the sentence and submitting to one another at the other end of the sentence um, provide a bookends to the relational elements. To be filled by the Spirit will impact on the way in which we relate to those around us. The first of those bookends, addressing one another, is the ministry we have to others. Being filled by the Spirit will move us into ministering to others. Submitting to one another is receiving the ministry of others, recognizing that God is at work in and through others, and we place ourselves under that working of God in and through each other. So it's just helpful to see that those actually balance and bookend this significant sentence. So Paul starts off with do not get drunk with wine. And we might think that's a uh, sort of a, uh, an exhortation, a warning that Paul was snatching out of the blue. Don't get drunk with wine. Now notice, first of all, the focus is don't get drunk. It's not the problem with wine. It's the drunkenness, which is helpful to know in the South Australian economy because of wine is a significant part of our economy. The wine is great. 
but don't get drunk with wine. Now, why would Paul be giving this particular instruction when he's leading into such a significant positive statement about being filled with the Spirit? And it's not just that he wants to counterbalance the two. It is helpful to locate this instruction with a social context in mind. Let me just do that. The church in the first century met in homes. There were no dedicated church buildings for centuries before they became to have dedicated church buildings. So the church in Ephesus met in homes, probably a number of homes, but and they exercise the hospitality, the customary hospitality of a home. If you have a home group at home, we would tend to do the customary hospitality, offering some tea and coffee and some supper perhaps, or whatever the occasion might be. So the context for hospitality was around a table. You would recline at table. Actually, there would be a, a setting for it. It's called a triclinium, a three-way uh, shape for the table, and each actually would ordinarily have a, their place around that depending on their social status. And that's another question of how Jesus played around with those, uh, where you position within it. But you can see it's a very close, intimate way of reclining uh, quite intentionally. It's a highly relational space. So when people met for a... Um, uh, a gathering in a home over a dinner, it would have a particular context. It would be a variation of these, uh, these parties. To have a church between 6 and 12 would be the average size church in this space. A church of more than 15 would be large. A church of 30 would be a, a, a very, very large church. So the churches of the first century in Ephesus and Corinth and elsewhere would be multiple gatherings of those highly relational uh, sort of gathering points exercised through the hospitality of the home. So why did the church gather? They shared a meal, the Lord's Supper. So reclining around the table and sharing the meal as they ate together was the customary mode of church. Why is that significant for our background here? Is that in the, uh, the Greek and Roman world, what happened after you ate would vary enormously depending on how you uh, viewed what was a good dinner party. And in the ancient world, a good dinner party was followed very often, but not always, not exclusively, by what's called a symposium. A symposium uh, we're familiar with the word, was the drinks that followed the meal. And it was a set piece as normal as when we have a barbecue, you'd often have drinks available as part of a barbecue of some description. At this stage, the females usually withdrew from the party and either went elsewhere in the household um, and there's a whole other question that uh, we'll come to again um, not so much through our Ephesians reading, but through another series. What you would notice through this one, this is actually a picture of the symposium from Seville in the first century. It's a mosaic, so it's actually contemporary with the time of Paul. And you see that drinking was a customary part of this gathering. 
And the measure in the folklore was not only how much food has there been available, but how much wine was consumed. It actually, sadly, isn't that different to the 21st century. When people talk about was it a good party, they assume as how much alcohol was there and was it, uh, it, was it consumed in abundance. For all too many people becomes a measure of whether it was a great good time was had by all. Well, that good time was had by all was certainly the culture in Paul's day. Not only was there a lot of um, drinking of wine and uh, warnings will come from not just from the church, not from Paul, but from philosophers and saying, if you get into that space, you're capable of making really stupid decisions. You'll become foolish and you'll come to regret it. So it was actually quite common to have the instruction, the same words that Paul would use, don't get drunk because you'll come to regret it the morning after. However, not only was there a lot of drinking going on, but with that abundance of wine, um, very often in the higher status gatherings, um, courtesans would come in, uh, had a term for it, the heterii. And uh, courtesans, the heterii, would come in to entertain the male folk and would often provide a song and dance and uh, various different forms of entertainment. And that sets a whole background of what church could look like if there's a whole lot of females getting into the song and the dance and then the entertainment. That helps us to read passages elsewhere in Paul, in 1 Corinthians in particular. So against this backdrop, Paul says when you gather as a church and as you have your meals together, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And uh, so suddenly that is not just an exhortation that Paul has grabbed out of somewhere, but this is very relevant to their gatherings as a church. So Paul, having said, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled positively by the Spirit and be continued to be filled. The form of the word is one that's continual. It's not a one-off experience. It's a a day-in and day-out experience for those who gather. And we'll explore that a little bit further. First of all, filled with what? Now, the language filled by, with, through, it can be any of those and possibly each um, collectively. But start with uh, be filled with what? And Paul's already given us some hints in Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul talked about the fullness of him, who, that is Christ, who fills everything in every way. So it's a big picture being filled with everything that comes of Christ. In chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul's talked about that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is actually one of those verses that just blows my mind. How we are invited to draw into our own experience the fullness of God, the God of creation, the God of life. And in uh, chapter 4 and verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, filled into the fullness of God in our Lord Jesus. So we can see that this reference to being filled isn't something that Paul has just introduced at this stage. He's already been leading us to this is God's purpose. This is God's mission plan. What he is wanting for all creation 
and certainly what he's wanting for those within the church. So to be filled by the Spirit is to experience God's uh, everything, all that God is about and God's mission coming and inhabiting, abiding and growing through us. So what are the characteristics? What does this then look like, being filled with the fullness of God? And here Paul gives us, um, has already given us some clues because he's talked about it. It is revealed in the way we walk, that is to say the way we live, and that's our lifestyle, and the way we think about ourselves and about life and about this world. That's back in uh, chapter 4. Paul has talked about the way in which we dress in terms of our character. Remember Paul talked about taking off the old clothing, the former way of life, and putting on the new clothing of, of the, the life in Christ and clothing ourselves in that way is also what it means to be filled with the fullness of Christ. And last week we saw how Paul contrasted that as living now in the light, all that reveals and moving out of the darkness of those who haven't seen the light of Christ. And through that we are, in God's um, working, able to become light, to illuminate the world around us and to reflect that light. So these are all ways in which Paul has already been drawing us in this direction. Now, as I said before, um, I don't know about you, but Paul names the messiness of the world, messiness of the world in the first century and the challenge of coming to faith and a whole lots of do's and don'ts. And as I reflect on the realities of life today, it's also messy. And in that messiness, it is wearing. It is wearing at the best of times, but in the last couple of years with COVID and other things that have shaken our normality, it's just been almost exhausting. And you add that to the recognition that the dynamics of power and superpowers and politicians and people who abuse and conflict and uh, relationships that have turned violent in our community and the hardships that are come our way, it's almost overwhelming. Actually, no, it's not almost overwhelming. It is overwhelming as we begin to absorb it. Now, a brief confession time for Fiona and I at this stage. We get to a stage with the news and we're saying, it's enough. Just need to turn it off. Now, Fiona, my short-term solution at that stage, this is true confession time, is to turn to Hallmark. Hallmark movie, Hallmark TV, filmed in Canada, it's nice to have a world where things are neatly solved by the end of the episode. And even when there's things like murders and things, they're what, what they now call blue sky murders. They have murders, but it's going to be okay because the sky is still blue and uh, people were able to move on. We know it's not the real world. Um, there's various scenes and locations in Canada we can relate to. But sometimes we actually need to step into that space where people are kind and cheerful but there's a deeper reality we can draw on. Where do we go in the midst of this is to draw deeply on the goodness of God, to fill us, to fill our minds, to fill our hearts, to fill 
our understanding of where God is to be found and God is at work in the midst of us. So being filled by the Spirit is in that space. Okay, what does it look like? Addressing one another. It's a ministry, it's a forms of communication. Singing and making melody to each other. So the addressing one another is in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody is to the Lord with all our heart. As we've read a number of the accounts of the early church, have you noticed how often they go to song? When Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, what do they do? They start singing hymns. When God's people gather, they turn to the Psalms and they sing the Psalms. And when they have the Spirit at working amongst them as the body of Christ, as Paul says, then those songs become a whole spiritual expression. Now, music and song can be um, uplifting and it can be powerful as part of the, the tapestry of the world that God has created. But you add the Spirit to that and it takes it into a whole new dimension again. To sing classic hymns where we can just really give it our all when we can take our masks off and when we can stand fully and move. But it is uplifting. It is more than just mere words. It is interesting and it is salutary to know that songs and hymns and spiritual singing has accompanied every revival of the church throughout the ages. It was a classic piece in the 16th century through the Reformation and the songs that emerged of Luther's hymns and and others. It was a wonderful characteristic of, um, of the Wesleyan movement where the great Wesleyan hymns, they instructed but they also uplifted and they opened up pictures and visions of what lies ahead in our journey. And it's also in our own experience in Australia. There have been revivals in Australia that have been characterised by great um, hymn singing. It's been true in South Australia. Revivals have been a part of that. In uh, Helensburg and in um, the Illawarra, where Fiona and I and John um, had our formative years in my ministry, um, there was a revival in the early 1900s. It was so successful that this coal mining town of Helensburg and a whole number of those coal mining villages along the Illawarra um, were so impacted that the pub owners complained that no one came to their pubs anymore because they're too busy gathering and singing in these church revivals. And again, we've seen it in the 20th century at times with Billy Graham and others. Singing is part of revival and not only giving ourselves to it, but praying that God will continue to raise up those gifted songwriters and hymn writers who give us such uh, treasures to be able to give our voice into. I should point out at this stage that not only is the ministry of music key to revival, but when it came to holy wars in the Old Testament and taking on the battles of Jericho, they sent the choir and the musos in first of all. They led the way. Just, just saying, you know. So Paul was naming this. This is one expression. It's also an expression before God, always and for everything, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
what is revealed is that life that we have been given is a gift of God. Our life, this world around us, the incredible intricacy of creation and its amazing ability to adapt and to continue to evolve and the reality of relationships and all that we experience when they are good and healthy. We give thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Being able to to use the Lord's name is not a swear word. It is not something to resort to when you want to describe how frustrated you are. It's an incredible privilege when we come before God and we almost imagine as if God would say, well, who are you? And we imagine Jesus speaking up for us and saying, it's okay, they're with me. We have God's name and God recognises us. It's an incredible uh, um, assurance and comfort that comes that we can use the Lord's name in that space. And then we come to the final part of Paul's sentence, giving way, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. More about that in a few weeks' time. And we should note finally at this stage that this is a whole church thing. It isn't just a personal experience, although it can be a very individual and personal experience, but it is certainly much bigger than that. We encourage each other with the Spirit as we breathe together as God's people through our songs and our Bible readings and our prayers, as Paul has been describing. We are encouraging each other into that space. Church at its best should be something when we gather together and certainly we gather in worship where we breathe deeply in the things of God and find that strengthening and that encouragement and that hope as we go out back into the wider realities of life and all that it brings. So to draw it together, to be filled by the Spirit is a work of God by the Spirit that engages and transforms our whole being, everything. It is regrettable, to put it mildly, that people's perception of the church has been so negative. And it has been because the church has been reactive for decades now. We've pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, not always wisely, not always in a way which has been conveying a spirit of of genuine love and recognising the messiness of the world around us and the perception of the wider churches, which does feed into things like the census figures where people are saying that they're not into religion, I mean they're not so much into the organised side of church, can be that they're places of judgement and holding people at a distance and you better be on your best behaviour otherwise you'll be shunned and all that culture. This is the mission of God for us as a church, is to be so immersed uh, in God's love that that is what becomes our catch cry. That becomes what we are known for. That was the prayer in the first century. No less a church, a prayer for us today. So this whole being as a church touches our minds, it touches our attitudes, it touches our hearts, our whole view of life. And then that shapes our relationships, which is where Paul takes us for the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. More about that in weeks to come. So as we look and pray for this willingness of God 
being filled by the Spirit. Let us not turn the gas down or even turn it off, but breathe deeply as a church. One of my hopes for the, all our services and no less for the 10.30 services, it's a place where we can pause, reflect, pray, breathe deeply and be encouraged by the presence of God in our midst, through us and to us. So as a way of concluding that, I'm going to play a piece from uh, Lauren Daigle and it talks about how everything... <laughs> comes from God and that becomes such a life-giving way to view our faith.